This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. The person I want to speak about today is somebody who probably left the greatest mark um, on the last 200 years or so, and us, we owe a lot to him because of it, and that's Absham Shemfal Hirsch. Absham Shemfal Hirsch, um, he was, uh, first of all, we always start by saying where I got my information from. By far the best book written about him is by actually somebody who's a Chavamayna, because Chavamayna's name is Elimea Klugman, was put out by Art Scroll. He is a descendant of Absham Shemfal Hirsch. He comes from his oldest son-in-law, Guggenheim, and he was brought up with the Yakisha family. He, A, understands underst- a lot of what, he, he understood that life and what was, you know, and all the things associated with it. He also did a lot of research and went to all the broyers, and really put together um, a, a very good history, uh, biography slash history of his Kufa. Um, he actually first, the first undertaking was he, he put out something called Shemesh Marpe, which was a collection of old tshuvas Epshan Foshosh had written. He had written actually an immense amount of tshuvas, but one of his children burned a big halak by, by the accident. She thought that's what her father wanted. So he got together Shtekotaira, tshuvas, everything, Igris, really put it together in Hebrew and wrote an introduction, which is a, a basically biography, and it was later redone in English. So that's the mucker. Um, so it's based both on material. I mean, he everything is footnoted where he got it from, and also from somebody who really understood it and understood the, uh, the, the understood that life, that culture, and so on. He was born in 1808, and he was Nifta in 1888. Um, and uh, the yard site is Chavzayin Davis. Let's first start with a little bit of Akdama about the framework of, his, of, of where he was born into and so on, which I think is very important. And um, we spoke last time actually, it, it actually segues from Rav Zinsheim. Um, the, the 1700s was a tkufa of enlightenment in the world around, revolution, and things changed in the whole world. We know the American Revolution and the French Revolution. Um, in thinking and so on, it w- there was a complete upheaval in terms of authority was no longer accepted. The church was tossed out as being the most important institution. Um, free thinking um, is non-belief. Things of that nature be- came to the fore. Coupled with at the end of the 1700s, we spoke about in France, where the Jews were granted equal rights. I think it was the only country in Europe, bef- um, be, be- the, the only other one I think was Poland that had officially, where Jews were supposed to have equal rights officially. And um, if it, it, so we had France, and Germany began slowly, Germany was a country that, present day Germany was split up in amongst a bunch of places. And a lot of them were like little, their own entities. Hamburg, Le Marshall was owned by France at that time, and then only later became Germany. But there was an Austro-Hungarian Empire, which had Austria and Hungary together, and that was very affiliated with a lot of the German um, uh, uh, little, uh, I don't know what to call them, principalities, duchesses, whatever you want to call them. And Bimela, there was a lot of traffic between them in terms of people, ideas, Rabbanim. And you'll find that Rabbanim went from Hungary to Germany and vice versa. The, um, so Germany was the country that was most strongly affected. The Jews were affected by the outside culture seeping in. And in the 1700s, the end of the 1700s, Germany started having an extremely strong um, uh, casting off of Torah and Mitzvahs. So you had Mendelssohn, who lived in the later 1700s, and he was a, a practicing Jew, but he very, very much supported 
a lot of thinking, discussions, intellectualism, and he was a very prominent Jew, and, and um, he brought in a lot of winds of change. He wrote a, a, um, a translation of Chumash, the beer, which doesn't have anything wrong in it, but it was banned by Rabbanim because it was a very, very, what's called high German. Um, it, was, it was German proper, and the Rabbanim felt, and they were right, that this would force people to learn German, and they would open up the windows of a lot of the German thinking and so on. So he was the beginning in many ways. There was somebody called Israel Jacobson, who, who, who started a temple, and his, where he had an organ, and he had a mixed choir, and all sorts of things, kind of radical changes in the tefillah. In Hamburg, they established an official temple. Um, his own children, most of his own children, were baptized at some point at, at, the, at the end of it. And that was the beginning of services that were um, changes in davening and in the shul and everything about that. The, um, it, it sort of came to a head. Um, there was a fellow named Geiger who was the sort of uh, ideologue behind the reform movement. He was somebody who had learned together with John Schaffel Hirsch in his youth. They were studied together in university. And he was who he would become probably the leader of the reform movement. In the 1840s, they had a series of meetings, of conventions, where they tried to come up with halachas, like a sort of redoing, casting away halachas, redoing halachas, and so on. It swept Germany up. And Germany became basically, um, reform is a loose word for it. Reform meant more what it's not than what it was. Basically, there was, they no longer believed in Torah, um, in Torah for sure not. The, the, the point of reform movement was Torah changes in each generation. Each generation accepts the Torah as it sees fit and presents it as it sees fit, and therefore every generation will change it, make the Torah more um, kind of suited for its days. That's why it's called reform. They very, very, very much wanted to fit in to German society. And they did everything to make Judaism as Christian as possible. The more extreme wanted to move Shabbos to Sunday, they moved Shabbos to Sunday, it didn't catch on. There was extreme fringes of it that said that you're not allowed to circumcise um, your child, it's, it's primitive, it's brutal, it's this, it's that, and that there was a range. It wasn't hard to say that there was a, a shalharach, but a lack of a shalharach. In other words, they, 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 were, they were better at deleting seifim. They changed the Nusra davening, so Karbanis, the tefillah for Karbanis coming back was out, Mashiach was out, Tchias um, Mason was out, um, and, and, you know, German was very much in. A lot of the city got converted to German. Some had all German. That was the Ruach. That swept Germany. And, and there were almost no yeshivas left in Germany. There was almost, you know, as, as, the, as, the, as, the, as the 19th century moved on, no yeshivas. Most houses of worship were reform. Most, the vast majority of the Jews were reform. And it had another problem with it. Communities were recognized by the government, A, as representing the Jews for the government. Two, in order for community to exist, the government allowed them to levy a tax on the members of that community. And once the reform took over the boards, they were able to take the money for themselves. And varying times and places, the government had a stronger hand. They would have to prove rabbis that were taken and so on. That was the state of German Jewry um, from when Shanshafal Hirsch became a, was a young man until he was Nifta. He was born in Hamburg in 1808. His father was a Frumyid, Erl Chayid, a, a good person. He learned his formative years, he learned for three or four years 
by somebody called Chacham Bernays. Chacham Bernays was an incredible personality, not known that much. His name was Rabbi Yitzhak Bernays, and he was a big Talmud Chacham. He was somebody who had studied and brilliant scholar. He was a great speaker. He was not a writer. And he was a Rebbe and to many other German Rabbonim, he was the one who actually was their Rebbe. Um, he was Rav of Hamburg, but they couldn't make him official Rav because the board was already reformed. So he took on the title Chacham, that way he avoided the problems of being called a Rav with the government. But the Maise, he was a figure who was a towering person, who was a Shpia on a lot of people. Much quieter version of Shanjafal Hirsch, but um, his Hashpa and Talmidim was Chashib, and a lot of the Rabbanim were his Talmidim. A lot of the good Rabbanim. He, he was there for about four years, and then he became a Talmud by Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger. We spoke about him last year, Hanukkah time. Um, he was the Aruch Lener. He was the Gdola Poskim, the biggest Talmud Chachim in Germany, and he learned by him for two years. And those were the those were probably the two people who had the most hashpa on him. Chacham Bernays was a very was a, was a big Yudea in in Machshav and so on. And Shachshval Hirsch picked up a lot from that. Um, the 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 Ner was Adam Godlad Moid, and um, those were his two rebbeim and the people that had the most hashpa on him. And he became a rav in a small town. Um, at the age of 23 and most of the Sfarim that he wrote most of the, well the beginning certainly the Sfarim that he published and then a lot of these beginnings he had time, in, it was called Oldingen and it was a small town and he had time to write Sfarim not much doing in the Rabbanis His, he first wrote a Sefer called Chorev Chorev was an exposition of the mitzvahs based on understanding the halachis and the philosophy behind the halachis. It was like a chinuch, a sefer chinuch for a modern world, not strictly mitzvahs but the whole Jewish life. He wanted to write a sefer called Moria with Ashkaf, he never wrote it for whatever reason. He couldn't find a Jewish publisher because they were reformed. Um, a guy said he's not sure if there would be a market fit, he should test the market to something smaller. So he, he, he brought out a small safer called 19 Letters, which is a, um, it's sort of a conversation between two friends, one of whom had become reformed or disenchanted with orthodoxy, and his chava was orthodox. And he starts out the first letter written by this friend, by the one who is reformed, starts out that like the Torah is really something terrible. It's frozen stiff. It offers nothing for somebody in our day and age. Now that we have a free world, we need to rid ourselves of first of all the Talmud and then get rid of, of, of all the antiquated laws and remake it. Bukhulu, bukhulu, bukhulu. There, he, he wrote it, did, did not pull any punches. He wrote the letter the way somebody who was disenchanted and on the other side would write it. And then he wrote letters, uh, 18 letters, 19 letters, uh, re replying. Um, it was a big Chiddush. First of all, it was written in extremely proper German. He was extremely... He, hadn't, he, he never got a degree in the university, but he was well studied and he knew the language extremely well. He, it was written with a lot of depth and a lot of passion. And until now, the, the, the reform had all the passion and the, the rhetoric and so on, and all the from Rabban, they were old, and all they could say was, it's usser and it's terrible, and, and so on. He, he spoke their language, and very, very sharply, um, he, he, you know, took, took reform to task. Um, it was a hit, and a lot of people read it, a lot of people were mushba by it, it, it made an impression. And then two years later, they put out Chorif, which is basically an explanation of Yiddishkeit with a whole different, with a Hezbah that's his. I will talk a little bit about this because it's, it's, um, it's, it's important to understand what he accomplished and what. He, we have his notes 
my friend, the, the one who wrote it, who is a grandson, had his notes that it for Choref. He, he started by listing every Chazal, including every Zohar. He never mentions Kabbalah in his writings. He sort of is, is indifferent to it. But he had every Zohar worked out. He himself knew his stuff. And once he had the full picture of how Chazal looked at the mitzvah, he formed a picture of how he understood the mitzvah. And then he translated it into a German that, that, that people could read and it would resonate with them. It's an incredible, incredible, different, difficult task. Most translations that you read either are not true to the source or they are not elegant and they're stilted and stiff. It's like, ever, it's, it's like when you read those rappers that were made in China and has instructions in English, some of them is garbled. Some of it is, it's, it's passable technically as English grammar, but, but it certainly leaves you a kind of chuckling. And the same thing was true with most Jewish people, most Rabban did not speak German, and those who did, they, 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 didn't, they, couldn't, they could not express it in ideas that were meaningful to a German, to a modern German fellow of his day and age. He could. And basically, what he did was, he drew a picture of Torah is given by God to take humans and humanity and to elevate them, to become a society of the noble and the good and the virtuous. And he was able to present it in a way that resonated. And people read it and they said, wow, we never knew this. Um, he didn't introduce new ideas. It, for, for somebody who is uh, 100% uh, Haredi, it still rings well. It may not be the world that he lives in, but he, there was nothing there that sounded like a, a strange idea coming from a strange place and sort of stuck into Yiddishkeit. It, it, it was authentic and yet beautiful and translated. It translated culturally into a different world. That's what, that's what he accomplished with his writing. From that point on, he would write a lot. Um, especially noted was he put out a newspaper called Yeshurun a little bit later. And that became the first um, religious, the first newspaper that was able to convey religious ideas, religious perspective, um, arguments, counter-arguments that held their own. They, they, they were not an embarrassment to read. They were strong, they were passionate, they were strident, they made sense, and they were expressed extremely well, extremely beautifully. He then took on a job, he was there for a few years, he took a job in Emden, which was a poor kehila. It, it, he spent five years there, um, really working very, very hard with the community, he had no time for anything except for just helping the people and so on. Um, and then he took on a huge job, and that was become the chief rabbi of Moravia. Moravia is like a province. Like I, s I explained last time, in Europe, uh, countries were kind of, you know, uh, let's call it disposable. You know, you could be in one country on Monday, in a different country on Thursday, and back again on Monday, and a third country on the next Thursday. Countries came and went. Moravia is a province, it's an area that is today Czechoslovakia and it was um, and he became the Rav in Nicholsburg, which was where the, the Cedar Abanis was it was a community with 50,000 Jews with a lot of different sub-communities and it was considered to be a very prestigious Rabbanis he was Rav there for a few years and he left it's not clear. There was a lot of issues there because the modern reform-minded people did not want him, obviously. And the older generation felt he's too reformed. They didn't like the fact that he believed in decorum in a shul. He wore a uniform. Um, they didn't like the fact that he... he, he, he they used, to do, they used to have the speech before Kol Nidre, which meant that Kol Nidre was after Shkia, which he felt halachically was an issue. Um, the halachas we start before Shkia. 
So he moved the speech to after Kol Nidre, and people were very upset about that. They felt that, um, you know, it's tampering, it's reform, whatever it is. Um, and they didn't like some of the old generation chafed at the fact that he, that he said speeches in German. Uh, he tried to give some structure to community and organize it. It should be, you know, very, very uh, yekish. They didn't take kindly to that. And basically he decided, he tried to organize a school, didn't go. He, he, I think he decided that he's not getting anywhere with this. You can't teach an old horse new tricks and, and there's nothing much going to happen here. And he left after, I think, four years. He, um, the whole community came and they, 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 they desperately asked him to please stay and so on and so forth. He, um, he took on a job in Frankfurt. Frankfurt had been a, a, a huge city there and Frankfurt was a huge commercial center, was and is, but the amount of Jewish families that wanted him as a Rav were 50, 100, a handful. Everyone, everything else had become reform and had fallen apart. Frankfurt was the last Rav of note was the Balafla, was a god, a, 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 you know, the, the Balafla, and then it disappeared very, very rapidly into um, nothingness. Frankfurt fell and they had a handful of people and there were actually like a dozen Mispalim Kavudika people who asked him to take on the Rabbanis and he took on the Rabbanis. That was what he, that's what he left for. He felt that he could accomplish something. He felt it's a community that's a growing community, a community that wants to do right, and he took on that Rabbanis, and until his death, 30 some odd years, that was where he was a Rav in. In Frankfurt, his community eventually reached like 500 families that were members, full members, and maybe a thousand people that could fill it at, at some great uh, you know, at, at occasion. The shul could hold a thousand people easily. And he really built a community of the Shemel Teferis. Um, some of the innovations that he made. First of all, he spoke in German, a phenomenal German. He was, um, he said, before we make a shul, we need to make a school. And he put all his efforts in creating um, schools, Jewish schools, for, the, um, for every age and every gender. He, f he strongly and stridently believed in um, an education for women. We spoke, when we spoke about the Aruch Lener last year, we, we, we mentioned how he spoke at a graduation for girls. Um, he very strongly believed. And later on when the Besiaka was formed, they would take teachers from there because that was the only place where women had an education, a Torah education. He very much believed in decorum, organization. Um, you couldn't walk into the show with filthy clothing, you couldn't walk into the show with, with shmatas. Everything, decorum was extremely important to him. The, um, he, the, everything was organized, and he built up a community of Shemus Ferris. The schools, when he started the schools, they had much more the government in different kufas started pressing for more they were a it was two it was twofold on the one hand the reform community opposed these things and therefore the reform community put a lot of obstacles they they, they didn't want to allow the government to approve them to prove their, their 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 school, they put a lot of the, it was Jews, reformed Jews, who fought it tooth and nail. The, then the government itself was always very wary. I will give them credit, at least Alexander uh, Tov, that they didn't want any any group to become their own beings. They wanted everything to become Germanized. And the more the school offered Limuri Kodesh, the more they felt it's it's making them less German. Now, they had a full curriculum of Lemur Echol, but they would come, they would say there's not enough hours for the kids to sleep, it's not good, it's not healthy for them, this is not healthy, that's not healthy. Uh, they, they kept on, and they really, they were able to push back so that it was less, uh, much less than Lemur Echol, Hirsch would have wanted, but there was. Um, he put out a newspaper. 
he also organized a um, he organized a, a union of Orthodox synagogues, which would become the forerunner Fagodes Yisrael. He felt it was very important because they were an embattled minority to get together. They did. And his organization became really the model for what Agudas Yisrael would be later. An organization of Torah true Jewry that brought together a lot of different communities to, to, to stand strong against a common enemy. He went, he, 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 he would write constantly, especially in the Israelit, which is the newspaper Yeshur and the Israelit with newspapers that he put out. He would write very, very strongly um, articles about what's going on and so on. So, besides the polemics with the Reform, who fought him tooth and nail and vice versa, he's, he stood very strong about it. He also battled against um, the beginning of what was the conservative movement. And I'll explain a little bit about, about what it is. Um, the Reform movement, A, wanted changes in the synagogue more than anything else. They wanted it to look like Goyim. Two, they were not so much into learned, into lumdus. The main thing was just the synagogue and being matter, everything else about it. Th there was another group of people that tried to, um, what's the right word for it? They wanted to change Yiddishkeit. They wanted to loosen a little bit. But they also wanted to retain as much of the flavor as possible. They also put the thrust of their activities into something that was, that was called Yiddishe Wissenschaft, which is scientific studies about Judaism. And that included studying a lot of the Talmud, etc., with a critical eye. And academic, academic study of Torah, and that would become sort of the heart and the sham of Yiddishkeit. And they would keep most of the mitzvahs, except for those that were really, really inconvenient. But, but you know, the, 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 the regular run-of-the-mill stuff, they were okay with. They didn't need to look like Goyim. They could eat Cholent on Shabbos and be happy with it. And, you know, herring for Kiddush. It was driving to the shul. Maybe that was a little bit annoying. So that you could be mad and stuff, stuff like that. They were, they were the forerunners. Um, there were two people that of note. One was Gretz, who was a big Jewish historian. And there's something fascinating about him. We'll, we'll speak about it in a minute. And there was somebody named um, Zachariah Frankel. And we'll talk about both of them. Gretz, actually, he was a Shiva Bacha. He had a crisis of faith. And he wrote a letter to Epshan Fall Hirsch. He didn't know him, but he had written the 19 letters. This was when he was still, I think, in, in, in uh, Oldingen. And he asked to come uh, learn with him. He stayed in his house for three years. And he kept a diary. So we have a lot of information about Epshan Fall Hirsch. Gretz um, learned him for three years. They would wake up four o'clock in the morning. For those of you complaining about storing about Shachos at quarter to eight, take note that if you're following Shachos Paul Hirsch's Derek, he's wake up four in the morning. He would learn with him Gemara, Tehillim, and Kant. Um, I'm serious. <laughs> they, they, and and he would they would read Greek and so on. And I, I will I want to talk about this because it'll be important soon. And Gretz was there for three years. He writes in his diary that he, he couldn't get his act together emotionally, internally, and he left. He got married, and he had a reform rabbi or an anti-Hirsch rabbi um, officiate. It was, a, it was kind of an official slap in the face for Hirsch. He came for a visit to visit him as, you know, as a young married couple. Hirsch, basically, she, was, she, she didn't have her hair covered. And Shantosh told him basically that he's not interested in seeing him again. Gretz wrote a history of Jews, the first really, really broad history of the Jewish people. Um, it, it was, uh, it, it ended up being a magus open, still considered to be the, the, the first major, really, real work of Jewish history. Um, it's credited as being the father of Jewish history. But the first song he put out was obviously the one interested in the most, was volume four which was 
the development of halacha. And the theme was, halacha goes back a long time, it's the rabbis developing halacha against the tztukis, and whatever it is, the point was, halacha was made up by the rabbis. Um, and it had a lot to do with the temperament of the person, and so on. Ershanshval Hirsch wrote a very sharp piece against it. He showed, he took two or three of his pieces and showed how it's based on nothing. He, he would bring, the kiosk was amazing, you know, he would bring 40, 60 places where the same Tana says something different, doesn't fit at all with what he said, there's a phrase that's used in the Gemara, um, that he was in a certain way, he shows there's one other place in Shas where it's used, it's very clear, this is what it means, a- amazing, Shashval Hirsch's Bikiyas um, and ability to summon these things were amazing, he, um, and he wrote very sharply against him. The second person was much more controversial. Rabbi Frankel was a so-called observant rabbi. He, um, he, he looked kind of from, but he wrote a piece that's called Darkia Mishnah, and basically how the Mishnah is structured, how it's set up, and Rabbi he said this man does not believe that Torah Shabbat came in Hashemayim. And he wrote very sharply against him, and he challenged him to state unequivocally that Torah Shemayim, even Torah Shabbat Torah Shabbat He was, Osiris Frankel didn't answer, but he had a lot of people that stood up for him, including the Ketzeis had a son-in-law named Rappaport, Shlomi the Rappaport, and he was a very scholarly person. He was, again, he was a from person, but his leanings were, were definitely left. And, and, and he quibbled with Rav Shashval Hirsch, and he, and, but he also was very surprised that Shai Frankel would ref, refuse to say that he believes that Torah came, um, that Torah Shabbat was given me Sinai. So basically, um, it, people were very angry with him for picking a fight with 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 uh, uh, um, Frankel. But at the end of the day, today Schaier Frankel is looked on as the father of conservative Jewry, basically, which means Torah halacha is not minashemayim. Um, it's wise. It's ancient. Traditions need to change gradually. But it's not binding, it's not really authoritative, except for the need to hold on to tradition. So it allows you basically to do anything you want in halacha, except you do it slowly and gradually with a lot of deference to what was. That, that's basically the bottom line of it. He was very pressing to recognize that this is where it's going to, fought it very bitterly. Um, so those of fights ahead. I um, I want to go back to something about Gretz, and l- l- let's talk about something which was a sheet of his. He spoke an awful lot about Torah and Derecheretz. That was like the central theme of a lot that he said. In his first speech that he spoke in Eldingen, Eldingen when he came, was he said. God speak to, speaks to us from nature, <coughs> and from history once again he speaks to us. Yashanashafal Hirsch's sheet on Tormdach Eretz has, it's, it's one of those things we spoke about, the people that are very popular, everybody adapts them as their own. Yashanashafal um, Hirsch was a great person, very popular, and Tormdach Eretz was interpreted by different uh, people in different ways. Rebbechber writes very clearly that it must have been a rasha. It was something that it wasn't meant to be for always. It was just, that was the need of Germany and so on and so forth. On the other hand, people who espoused Torah Mada see Rebbechber Hirsch as the father of the Ashita. The truth is, um, again, the, what, what comes out again from writing and writing, from his writings is as follows. He did have a broader sense of things. He did believe that there is what to be had by broadening a little bit and, and looking out of the ghetto walls. Like he basically, he writes that the Jews were trapped in the ghetto, they couldn't see the sky and the forest and so on. The, 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 the poetic grandeur of nature 
was something that spoke to him. Um, and he saw the Kail Hashem from every single place. He felt that there is value in things of, of in history, he strongly felt there's value, writing, uh, grammar, and things of that nature. Um, philosophy, he felt there were certain things that had value, but he, he picked and he chose. I want to go back to Sir Gretz, because I think it, 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 it delineates a very, a very strong um, element of his Torah and the Hertz. Gretz writes, this is Gretz writing in his memoirs. So they got up at 4 o'clock in the morning, they were learning Gemara, Tehillim, Kant, I think somebody wrote something about Greek, if I remember correctly, and so on. They were once discussing a philosophy work, and they were reading together the work of somebody, and Abshamshafal Hirsch said, This is Chiruf and Giduf. And he entertained the thought of not returning it to the library, burning it, and paying in the library for it, and that's it. Being Mekayim with At the end, back and forth, he, he just cut out that page and without much, without that, and gave it back to the library, and that's it. So, yes, it, it's, and, and, and that's a very, very important part. If, uh, to, to say that, I'm, that the world has what to offer is, is, is um, and, and not, not choosing and choosing and picking and picking means every cold of a raw gets into you. It, I mean, his godless, he, he, he said, yes, there is what to see in the world's knowledge, but what's wrong should be torn out. I'm not accepting worldly knowledge for this. I don't give them authority. It, a, a philosopher is important only because he can articulate ideas that are a better articulation of what I, of what I know to be true from the Torah, and I have new words to use for it. But if somebody proposes an idea that's not Torah, there's no room for it. And it's important to remember he was a kanoi, and we'll see soon. He was a very big kanoi. It, it, it was a package deal. He was able to open and say there's a lot. He, certain poems he read. There were certain poets that he read that he felt there's a lot of beauty. And, and there's something pushing there to realize a bigger nefesh. On the other hand, there were things, there, there was much that he felt was, you know, if, if you can't read it because it's, it's not appropriate, then, then, then we're, we're, there's no hetero. Just because it's worldly knowledge and culture, there was no such Torah Mada in the sense if it's interpreted as something which is, it's, it's, it's equivalent, there's Torah and there's Mada, and one can't exist without the other, that's exactly not what he said. He said there's Torah, but Torah needs to be able to speak through nature, through history, through every, everything that Kodesh Baruch Hu gave in the world to, to express it in, it needs to express it. His school system was echrech. There was no, there was no other choice. As Germany in those days, you couldn't have an old yeshiva, and he wouldn't have had an old yeshiva. But he probably would have had a lot more limited kodesh than he did have, and there was a very different balance of priorities. So, Torah de Heretz is true. It was not quite the East European model. It was a far cry from what modern orthodoxy presents itself as. There was one area that he really battled and was not victorious, certainly not in his lifetime. And it caused him a tremendous amount of Agnes Nefesh. And that was what's called the Ostrit. The Ostrit was like this. We explained for the government had set up, communities were recognized entities by the government. And if, if a place wanted, if somebody wanted to build a shul, the government would turn to the community head and say, is the shul necessary? Do you want to... The community had the right to tax. In different places, the different arrangements. The Frankfurt community was totally in the hands of the reform, which meant, A, Rav Shanshafal Hirsch's community had to pay tax to them, whether they liked it or not. Unless they declared themselves to be Catholics in good standing, they had to pay a tax. So it wasn't even the amount of money, it was just the idea that the money's going for reform. They, they couldn't make a shul. They weren't allowed to call themselves a shul because only community could sanction a shul. They called themselves the, the Israelitische Religiese Gesellschaft, which means IRG, which means 
the Israelite religious society. And he felt they couldn't, they couldn't have their own base aquarius, there was one base aquarius. Everything was dependent on them. He fought tooth and nail to allow the community to become an independent community. And finally, with a tremendous amount of effort, years and years and years of effort, the government passed a law that you can exit the community. That was called Austrit, which means to step out. You had to appear in front of a justice of peace, in front of a judge, declare that you're no longer part of that Jewish community, and then declare, uh, you have to come back six weeks later that you didn't change your mind, and only then have you stepped outside that community. The Epshantrel um, Hirsch rejoiced, and he said, we, every, it's a chiyav on everybody to step out. Now, many people felt, including Rabbanim, it's a fantastic law to leverage, to use as leverage, and to go back to the reform community and say, listen, either you give us what we want, or we leave. So, Lamash, what do they want? There was a Jewish hospital. They wanted there to be kosher food in the Jewish hospital. They wanted that they should allow them to run their own schools. That they, if they have rabbanim, they should not have to go through the central jurisdiction. That they should, they should be able to make their own slaughterhouses for kosher meat with shrit and everything like that. On and on. Those are the type of things that they wanted from the, from the, reform, from the reform heads of the Frankfurt community. Reb Shanshval Hirsch held in principle. He said, as long as we have to give money, we have to give money. But to belong to a community that's based on disbelief in HaKadosh Baruch and disbelief in Torah, what's the heta? um, Which is the forerunner of the the Eidachredis in that sense. He said, when it's a forced partnership, okay, what can you do? But to voluntarily sign on part of a community when you're not, when, 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 when the basis for community is, is, is beliefs like that, b'shumay for not. Um, Ev Hirsch was extremely, um, fought for it, and he held, it's a chiv on everybody to step out. Most of his community did not. Um, two-thirds of his community did not step out of that, out of that, out of that uh, main community. And he was very broken by it. The reason was, there were a whole a lot of reasons, but um, one of the strong reasons he had was, or they had was, you had to appear in front of a judge and say, I am no longer part of the Jewish community. They really did not feel that it's right to do it. You know, it was something that went against everything, against the grain, and they couldn't do it. At Laharaya, decade after it was Nifta, Rav Shanshafal Hirsch, um, the government said all you have to do is check a box in the paper and send it in. Two-thirds of the community did exit. But as long as you had to appear and declare, they didn't, they didn't like it. There was also a very big rub, a big Talmud Chacham. His name was a Bamberger. He opposed it. it he said, he, he was generally speaking in favor of it. But in Frankfurt, because of the arrangement that was possible to be had, he, he came and he passed in that you were allowed to stay. And Shanshafal Hirsch was very angry. It was a big fight. Uh, he was a big Talmud Chochem. His descendants are very Chashavah, Talmud Chachomer Bambergers. He's one of, uh, um, he's got many Chashavah descendants today. The Bambergers are basically from him. One of them was Ashkech, one of them is Yeshiva. One of them is son of Revolba. Very, 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 very Chashavah family. He was against it, and, and Rashan Shalhurst was very hurt by it. Um, but in his lifetime, most people did not step out. He was, he put out Mosfarim, he put out his, his commentary on Chumash, which is a landmark. What it does is a few things. First of all, it, it continues like Chorev, it, it gives a whole perspective on Chumash, on Torah, on mitzvahs, on events that happened. It's written very passionately. He also introduced darshing words. He felt that, that Hebrew, because it's Kaddish Be'etzim, it's not only are the three letter roots, but if two of the letters are the same, so like Tzohar and Zohar, 
um, it, meaning fire, light, shine, window, and so on, they all come from a common word, and it would darshan it. It's a very interesting way of, 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 of looking at it. Um, and a lot of the ideas he wrote in, in Chumash were um, the same type of ideas that he had in Chorv, that same shnit pervades his Chumash, and it became one of the classic commentaries and, and um, you know, for, for a lot of people, this became the, the work that they, this is their Hashkaf, this is how they look at things, how they understand things. He died in 1888, and there's a fascinating vignette about his Ptira. Um, he was meticulously honest in his monetary affairs. He once said the greatest tragedy, Klaus has not gotten over the tragedy of the fact that the tour decided to divide Shoch into four halakim. Because some people ha- own an Arachayim and half a Yerdeyan, and they feel that with that they're El They forgot there's a Choshen Mishpat also that comes with it. And the other half of Yerdeyan, meant Ribas probably. Um, so he was extremely, and he left over in his will that the, gov- the, the community paid him quarterly. You know, it's four times a year he got his paycheck. So he said that the, the quarter in which he was his nifter, they should not, he, the family should give back the paycheck because he didn't fulfill his obligation. He didn't serve a whole quarter and doesn't deserve it. He was nifter on Chavzayin Tevis, December 31st, 1888, which meant that he was the full quarter and the family had, no one had to give anybody anything. He, he pulled it through. It was interesting. Uh, he, did, he was nifted on December 31st, that's 100% true. And uh, it was written up in the Israeli that this is, you know, this was him and so on. So, let's sort of recap a lot of, of, of his. First of all, he was the first person to show that Yiddishkeit could go on the offensive instead of defensive. He showed that it, the using the tools of speaking and speaking well, language, content, passion, depth, are extraordinary tools for getting a message across. Um, building a community and making it rock solid. Uh, the, the importance of education for children, for women, for men, for everybody. That was, uh, it, it, he was the first one that really, really founded school system that actually produced from people and so on. Um, he also had a broader perspective on things. Torenberg Eretz was a perspective where there's no facet of life that's devoid of Akadish Baruch and so on, um, as a, just uh, just picking something out of random, it, it, how you you see all the pieces snap together. He speaks about the halacha of not selling uh, that land goes back after fifty years, you know Yevil, the music of land going back, and he says land created a crisis in society as following. People would be poor. Everybody had land on a farm. People would be poor or whatever it is, they would sell off the land. They would sell off the land, they would become a landless class. Wanderers, beggars, poor people, and this created a tremendous cancer in societies. There would always be these revolts, they would become serfs, they become slaves. It, it, it really was destructive society. On the other hand, if you can't ever sell land, then you can't ever get capital. So a person has a big piece of land, it's making X amount as, as a farm, but if you were able to, 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 to get capital and build a factory there, or, or, or whatever it is, he would do much better. If he'd be able to sell part of his land, get machinery and modern equipment, he'd go a lot more. So in a society where you can't sell land, you freeze everything. Selling land, but not forever. For you, it always comes back to the children. Basically, 50 years is that type of. So the average is 25 years. That allows for capitalization, 
without creating a permanent class of landless people, which is a cancer society. That's, that's an incredible grasp of, it's a big picture of economics, society, it's, it's, it, it's a certain understanding, it's a certain breadth, and to see it in the Torah and so on, remarkable. remarkable. Um, it's interesting, a person who picked up one of his, um, Sarah Schneerer, picked up his 19 letters, and when she read it, she was turned on, and she decided with that to start the Beisakov movement. That, that was a big factor in her becoming energized to start the movement. And she took teachers from there, because they were the, the German were the only ones who could present themselves extremely well, both in terms of being impressive with their, with their dignity, with their knowledge, with their presentation. They were professional. Um, he created a newspaper and publications, which was way before his time. He created an overarching society, like the, you know, the, the, the Orthodox Union, which was also before his time. All of the things that it would take into the next century for most of other Yiddishkeit to realize it, he was there. And a lot of what he presented was something which America emulated, Litova. Um, school systems, boys and girls, communal structures, overarching structures like Orthodox Union and things of that nature. All of those things owe themselves to Fall Hirsch. Um, so in terms of impact in society, in terms of the ability to take what was old and recast it, um, it was amazing that even though he was quote-unquote modern in many ways, he, the respect that he had of the Rabbanim in Hungary, um, in, in, in Eastern Europe, was incredible. People, he met Rabbi Salanta once, they had a discussion, and they were both in awe of each other. I once read an account, there was a, a, a Hungarian Yid, his name was Greenwald, he ended up later being a Rabban Columbus Ayer, what they call Ben Avelis. He, he write all sorts of historical things, and he learned for, for some time by Sham Shafal Hirsch. How he got there, I don't know, but he, he spent time there. So he was disappointed with the Gemara share. He was used to a lot of pilpul in Hungary, and he said there was no pilpul, it was all shot and straight. He said, but when Sham Shafal Hirsch got up to speak, it was like a Novi Alekim speaking. He said, the emis the intensity, the passion, the divine aura, he said it was like a Navi talking. And that he hadn't seen, this is, and he was a person who was all over him. Mean, he writes a lot about everything, everywhere. And this was to him a paradigm of, of Ishalakim. So Al Kaponim, of, of the many people we've spoken, he's, he's probably one of those who has the most direct connection to, to, to what's happened in our times. The, even the Chuva movement, where we took the offensive, and we recognize that by learning the language and the, and the ideas, we're able to take Yiddishkeit and give it to new generation with, with the language that they need, and yet retain everything there is mitzah de That was what, what he accomplished, that's what he did. He's Hosea Gnaleinu.